Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Joining me, the president of American Commitment, that's AmericanCommitment.org, uh, is Phil Kirpin. And we are going to be talking about school closures bringing the worst of the self-inflicted COVID harm, uh, perhaps economically even worse than the shutdown themselves. Uh, now, Phil's been talking about this for quite a while, but uh, over the last couple of days, um, American Federation of Teachers Union President Randy Weingarten has been out there insisting that she was on your side, Phil. That was what you just got done telling it's, me. Right? I, I can't. It's really unbelievable. And I mean, we've been fighting her for three years. <laughs> you fought her, fought her tooth and nail. I mean, she was. A, she, they were saying, "Oh, if you open the schools, you're racist and misogynist." I mean, that was the Chicago Teachers Union is a chapter of the American Federation of Teachers. You know, all these local fights we've been having all over the country. A lot of them are, you're literally fighting her union, okay? And she says, we can't possibly open schools until you give us $150 billion. And of course, you know, by, oh, here's your $150 billion, all this stuff. And, you know, so we're fighting her tooth and nail. And then she says, no, no, I've always been up for open school. I was the open schools person. I say, okay, I mean, I... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, she is just the worst kind of demagogue. And I, she's saying, I was always for opening schools. You know, we just needed to get to a point where we could open schools. The problem was, is that this was a moving target. Every time uh, Randy Weinberg would make a, yeah, every time she'd make a demand, you'd meet the demand. I think the most interesting of these, you, you mentioned funding. That was part of it, right? Because they wanted the funding to go in and put barriers up and, you know, plexiglass around student desks and they got it, right? Uh, but the most interesting of these was, what Randy Weingarten and other teachers unions insisted that teachers get priority for the vaccine. Do you remember this? This is like early yeah. in, in 2021, right? That teachers had to have priority for the vaccines uh, so that they could be vaccinated uh, ahead of time and then they could go back into the classrooms. And it, when that happened, <laughs> the teachers got vaccinated. Randy Weingarten and the unions then said, yeah, but we can't go in until all the children are vaccinated too. Right, right. And, and of course, and Ed, remember, half the country had been in school that whole school year. It was right. just the half that were in places that the union didn't have a lot of power. And so, you know, we we had all these places that were completely ignoring the things that, that she was saying and that had been in school, you know, starting in August 2020, um, basically without incident. And, you know, there was just never in the blue areas, the areas that had huge union influence, nothing would ever be enough. And so they couldn't learn from Europe. They couldn't learn from the Southern states. They, they had their own ideas. And it was always, we need one more thing, one more thing, one more thing. And I really do think it was mostly about money because remember when Biden came in, there was a lot of anticipation that, uh, okay, you know, what the unions were doing with the schools was highly political. They were trying to beat Trump, but now that Biden's in, they're gonna ease up and everything's gonna open. And uh, there's a lot of anticipation around CDC, the first CDC schools guidance under Biden, because almost everyone expected that they would loosen things up and the rest, they, half of the country that hadn't opened would open. And instead, Biden did kind of the opposite. <laughs> they actually, the Biden CDC's first schools guidance actually called for the entire school to close again. And of course, the places that had been ignoring them continued to ignore them. So it didn't actually cause any more closures. But uh, they basically put out this extremely crazy, like cancel all sports and extracurriculars anywhere that it's right. red on this map. And then the whole country was red. I don't know if you remember this. It was like, I do. We're in the red zone. You've got to cancel. And it's like, you just, your map has the entire country. Red. And, you know, it became pretty clear. And a lot of FOIAs came out later, a lot of email traffic and so forth that 
the teachers unions actually dictated large sections of that guidance to the CDC. And they didn't relent until Biden passed his CARES Act, which had $150 billion for K-12 education. And it's not, the vast majority of that money was not, oh, for, you know, COVID, plexiglass or dumb COVID theater or whatever, because most of the money gets spent out over 10 years. So it wasn't even like the, the money, well, the money came in and now we can open it. It's like, no, okay, now we've got the money written into law. So now we can relent. So the, what I liken this to is basically when Randy says, oh, we were always for opening the schools. We just needed, you know, it to be safe. What she means by that is, you know, we were always going to release the hostages after you paid the ransom. So, you know, we were on your side, right? I mean, we're so you probably like David Strom's headline from today too, right? Then or yesterday, actually, it was up yesterday. Um, Randy Weingarten is an evil liar. <laughs> no, I mean it's, uh, it's if you want to be blunt about it, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's well, uh, David's you know, going to she, be. She's blunt. utterly shameless, utterly shameless. And you know the other, you know, to go back even further, you know, they had that they clearly had corrupt influence with the Biden CDC, and that extended things another month or two while they were raiding the Treasury for all that money. But you know that. Uh, really only impacted the bluest parts of the country because every place else was basically open already at that point. And so right. it's terrible if you were, you know, if you're in, you know, New York City or D.C. or whatever, when California, if you're in a place that cared a lot, then, you know, then that was terrible. That they did that. Uh, but I think the union influence on the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, you know, the prior summer during the Trump administration was actually even more destructive, was even more corrosive because, uh, you know, not everyone necessarily remembers this, but the first version of the American Academy of Pediatric Schools guidance was really good. The, the yeah. guidance that they put out in late June, it was basically like, everyone should be in school, don't do a part-time or a hybrid schedule. It's more, you know, if you have less than six feet, that's fine. It's better than sitting kids at home. Don't worry too much about masking in the lower grades because they're not going to be able to get any benefit from it anyway. And everyone needs to be in school, basically what their document said. I mean, it had some silly stuff in there, but it was a pretty good, I, I mean, it couldn't be characterized as anything but pro-school. And they put that out. And then a few days later, Trump said, look at this. I agree with this. It's great. The pediatricians say all the schools should be open. I want all the schools open. We're going to force them all to open. And a few days after that, 10 days after the original AAP guidance, with only Trump endorsing it in between, uh, they reversed themselves 180 degrees in a literal joint statement with the teachers unions. And so they put out a press release that said, pediatricians and educators agree that schools can't open until, you know, blah, 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 blah. So it, it, they essentially did a total 180 degree reversal. It looked totally political to me, but that was really fateful because in a lot of places, that was kind of like game over, right? Why well, hey, pediatricians right. say we can't open? And so I, I actually think that their their influence on the American Academy of Pediatrics was maybe even more corrosive than their later influence on the CDC. Because, of course, you know, when Trump was president, the CDC, at least the top, the CDC director, was great on this issue. I mean, every time Redfield talked about this, he said schools all need to be open. The harms of school closure are much worse. Now, he had a different we had a different problem in the Trump administration, which is the bureaucrats we're not necessarily on the same page as the director. And so right. we'd get the director saying all the schools need to be open. And then you go to the website and like the CDC website at one time had two totally opposite school recommendations on their same website, depending on which page you loaded. 
So like, you know, it, you know, there was the one that clearly came from the director. There was like all the schools need to be open, the psychological, mental health harms, all the educational ones, all of that. And then there was like another page somewhere on the CDC site that was like, you can't open unless you can do all these crazy things that no one can do. And unless the case rate is super low and all this kind of thing. So we had a, we had a, um, you know, we had a management problem at the CDC during Trump, uh, but at least the leadership was saying the right things. Uh, but it really harmed us when the unions flipped to pediatricians. That was a, that was a huge setback. And so when she's saying, oh no, I was on your side. I, you know, people were scared. It's like, if people were scared, it's because you got the pediatricians to reverse their position. Right. <laughs> you know, on the basis of no, on the, on the basis of no science whatsoever. All this science. On the basis of, and of orange man bad science. Well, yeah, okay. On that basis, clearly it was a political move. But I mean, we actually had science coming out of the UK at the time showing that schools were not a amplifier of community uh, training. We had a tremendous, a tremendous amount of science. Look. Um, Sweden never closed schools for under age 16, and they never really imposed any mitigation. They had some guidelines that weren't really followed and that kind of thing, but they never masked. They never really disrupted the schools in any meaningful way. And um, they had no learning loss, which is probably not surprising right. uh, because they were run, running school normally throughout. But they had no they had no problems related to that. And in fact, uh, you know, Finland, I think, did close schools for about three or four weeks. And then there was a joint study that came out that summer uh, that basically was done by the health departments in Sweden and Finland. And the Finns said, we made a mistake. We shouldn't have closed at all. The, the Swedes had it right. There was no benefit of any kind to those closures. And of course, uh, the other European countries, which generally had closures of about three or four weeks, they did not blow out the whole rest of the school year the way the U.S. did. Um, they gave it, they produced a huge amount of research and data, and all of it basically showed that schools were a better place for kids to be than not schools because the school setting is relatively structured. So, yeah, it's eventually going to spread through everyone in the school. By the way, 100% of kids ended up getting COVID anyway, you know, by, by where we are now. It's, you know, it's 95% right. have antibodies, and the other 5% probably had COVID but just didn't develop antibodies. So, we know everyone got it anyway, but look. Yeah, if you were trying to limit the spread and you, know, you were concerned about health care resources and that kind of thing, school was still the best place for kids to be, even if that was the only thing you cared about, because it's a structured setting. They're basically in a class with the same kids for the most part, whereas when schools are closed, everyone's scrambling for different child care. They're this, that. They're interacting with different people in different ways. The craziest thing was this idea of the part-time hybrid school schedule, where they said, you know, you're going to be in school a few days a week, so you're still going to interact with all the kids that you would have interacted if you were full time. Right. But, you know, the other couple of days, you know, go figure something else out with a different group of people that you're going to interact with. So they, they significantly increased population mixing because some genius, you know, drew on a page. We decided you have to have six feet and you can only fit this many desks. It's pretty incredible that they would yeah. think that they were so, you know, short-sighted. Completely, completely idiotic. The school closures were disasters, and not just for kids, but for the economy, because it took working people out of the economy because they were forced to, you know, care for their children during hours where they would normally be working. And so there was a huge economic hit. In fact, let's talk about all different ways, because this is really the this is was really the original topic um, from your New York Post uh, column. I believe it was about three weeks ago or so that you wrote this New York Post uh, column about all the different ways in which this was a disaster. And you can quantify the, the disaster, you can quantify the cost of the disaster. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, 
there's a very strong relationship between educational attainment and income, and also between educational attainment and life expectancy, and you know, income and life expectancy. They're all tightly, they're all tightly related. And so when you deny kids schooling, and I think on a, the average is the, the average kid lost a little bit more than a third of a year of schooling. Uh, and uh, of course, you know, there are a lot of kids who didn't lose any. And so, you know, you can think about it, the average. There are a lot more that lost a lot more than the average. Right. The kids who lost a full year of educational attainment are a whole grade level behind where they otherwise would have been. And, you know, that has enormous lifetime economic consequences. They, you know, if they, if they can't figure out a way to catch up, and some kids will catch up, but, you know, a lot will not, uh, that means they're going to have much lower lifetime income. They're going to have lower life expectancy. There's going to be a lot of, you know, there, uh, a lot of uh, costs associated with that. And there have been multiple studies quantifying this. They, this the costs run well into the trillions. And, uh, you know, this is... It, it's a hole that we're not necessarily going to get out of, uh, even in the long term, and therefore uh, these consequences are only going to grow over time. And the, uh, the all of the other things that we talk about, I mean, the educational harms uh, are going to have this big, big economic consequence over time. But of course, we also have enormous mental health harms. Uh, we also have enormous physical health harms. There was a lot of weight gain, obese, childhood obesity went up pretty dramatically over this period. We've got huge increases in uh, anxiety and depression uh, among children during this period. Uh, all of that has, you know, economic consequences as well. You know, if somebody's suffering, you know, clinical mental health problems, they're probably not going to be very productive economically. If somebody is uh, suffering obesity, there are a lot of costs associated with that in healthcare utilization and other things. And so, uh, all of the sort of immediate problems, and there are massive ones, they all have downstream consequences. Ultimately, I think the worst is going to be that loss of educational attainment. I mean, the difference in life expectancy between a high school graduate and a high school dropout is about five years. And so if we've got, you know, if we've got half a million or a million kids who would have finished high school and now didn't because they fell off the map or they started doing something else or what, what have you, that's going to have a massive economic and health consequence over time and so yeah i just and and the thing that's crazy about it is as i said there was no benefit to any of it every kid ended up getting COVID anyway and so what what do we do this for it was literally all pain uh with no gain and uh so that's why i say it was the the worst self-imposed harm and it actually might it ultimately prove worse even than the natural harms of COVID itself and you know that would obviously be a stronger claim given you know the number of people that died from COVID. but in the long term that may in fact prove to be the case. And so I think it was just the catastrophic uh, self-imposed uh, error, policy error that we had, the, the school closures that we did and that they lasted as long as they did. And the other aspect of this, there's a recent thing, the, the Associated Press did this study with Stanford. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, they sort of looked at the enrollment drops in public schools across the country, the known increases in enrollment in private schools, the known increases in homeschooling, and they figured out that there are about a quarter of a million kids that are completely missing. We don't know where they are. They're not in the public schools anymore. They're not in the private schools. They're not being homeschooled. Their whereabouts are unknown and unaccounted for. And that's pretty scary because they're going to start yeah. showing up in ways that, uh, you know, committing crimes or, you know, drugs or whatever. I mean, they're going to start when, when that many kids drop off the radar, they're going to start to reappear in ways that are that are uh, disturbing. And we've really yeah, seen and, it to a certain extent. And socially costly, and not just in terms of crime, but in terms of, you know, requirement for, you know, safety net program uh, support. That's that type of thing. Uh, people who are just simply, 
it, you know, you hate to, <clears throat> it's a bit reductive to say, well, they're not going to be productive members of society because obviously, you know, people's lives matter more than just simply what they produce. But when you're talking about calculating public policy, when you're talk, talking about calculating the types of safety net programs that we do have in place and what resources are going to be required, you do have to talk about whether people are self-sufficient or, or are not going to be self-sufficient. And the odds of the people who are dropping off the radar somehow achieving self-sufficiency in a meaningful way are a lot longer than people who are who were able to get through this without going through the closures, without going through the um, the developmental loss, the educational loss, the socialization loss. And you know, I, I think if you're a if you're a, a, a child whose normal experience is homeschooling, you're not going to have these. Uh, these types of outcomes, but from staying home, right? But if your normal had been being in public schools or even in private schools, and suddenly you're, you're thrown into a sort of quasi homeschooling situation where it's not really homeschooling, it's really just being on a computer and looking at Zoom. <clears throat> Man, I think that that's really dislocating. And, yeah. uh, and, I mean, it, it kind of puts you in the worst of all worlds. You're going to fall behind people who are homeschooled where outcomes are usually really good, both in terms of, you know, um, capabilities and in terms of, you know, mental, you know, being well adjusted mentally and, and emotionally, that type of thing. But you're also going to be behind the people in public and private schools now too, yeah. who were able to go all the way through. And, and yeah, the outcomes here are going to be, it's going to be difficult, I think, to actually measure this as we go along. It's going to occupy socio. It's going to be the sociologist um, perpetual employment, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, uh, syndrome. I guess you could say uh, they're going to have. There's to going to be a lot of studies on this, I think. And yeah. look, I mean, the I don't want to be too fatalistic about it, Ed, because I do think that we can catch a lot of kids up. We can reverse a lot of these harms to a certain Hopefully, extent. Yes. Uh, but you know, the the thing, what what. What I what I think is happening now, though, is the kids who are in you know stable situations, middle or upper income, you know they they are largely being caught up. Okay, you know some of the developmental and social is more difficult, but certainly in terms of the educational, the things that you can solve with resources, you know those kids mostly will catch up. Now, a lot of other kids though are in less stable home situations or have dropped off the radar completely, and I'd who's Who's going to help them catch up? And this idea, you know, what do you get from the left and the people who impose this on us and the unions? They say, just throw more money at them and they'll solve the problem. Well, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think that'll solve the problem very well at all. And so, I, I do, I do worry uh, that, you know, the the kids who the kids who have disappeared. I don't know how you make them reappear in a way that's positive. And so, it's a, it's a challenge. Even, you know, even if we all agree we should address it, it's not really clear that it can be fixed, uh, or certainly that it can be fixed for everyone at this point. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, I think that the idea that uh, Randy Weingarten is now trying to change history and trying to, you know, recast herself as an advocate for open schools gives you an idea of just how bad this is going to end up looking when people really well, even Fauci did the same thing. He said, Oh, no, I always want to, school. you know, I mean, and, and you, you know, what they did, the, th the thing is, if somebody didn't, if somebody doesn't have kids and didn't really pay close attention, then they could almost get away with these lies because, you know, back in 2020 and 2021, they did always say things like, oh, I want the schools open. 
but there's always a but, right? And they say, but it right. has to be saved. You have to do this, this, this. So now they pull these clips and they say, Fauci's like, hey, look, here are 10 times I said, I want the schools open. It's like, okay, but we were paying attention to, you know. Yeah, you know, you have to, uh, not to, not that he's a great philosopher or anything, but you have to quote Pee Wee Herman on on this. And I'm, I'm going to play, I'm going to play stump Phil here. <laughs> uh, if you, you are, so, am I? Peewee's, Peewee's great adventure is, but everybody always has a big butt. So please tell me, what was your big butt? What's your big butt? <laughs> I don't know if you remember that from Peewee's big adventure. <laughs> He's talking to somebody who says, oh, I always wanted to visit Europe. And, he, you know, it's just whatever, you know, Paris. I think it was supposed to be Paris. And and um, he talks about everybody's big butt, which is, you know, hilarious. But but it really applies in, in this because, yeah, they were laying the groundwork for their these are weasel words right yeah oh yeah no I, I i here's 10 times i said i want schools open but they don't want to talk about their big butt right right <laughs> right i, don't, I, mean, I don't know a better uh, way to put that you know it's, yeah it's it's really it's really infuriating to see the people yeah. that we fought against tooth and nail day after day after day now claiming that oh no actually we were the good guys and you know not like we were the good guy because we were right and you were wrong. We were they're, they're pretending they were saying the things we were saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't think an apology is really worth a hell of a lot. But at least they should acknowledge the fact that they were wrong. And no. it's not like there wasn't data on this because, as you said, in a lot of states, these schools were already open, they were operating, and there weren't any disastrous outcomes in, in terms of COVID nineteen you know, community transmission. Right. Yeah, they ignored the data from Europe and then they ignored the data from the South. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like no data, no data from other places can have bearing on, you know, blue blue state, blue city America was basically yeah. what they were saying. It's I, I crazy. Don't... Just absolutely crazy. All right, so Phil Kirpin, you're president of American Commitment, AmericanCommitment.org. Um, go over there, you can take a look at, uh, you can take a look at how you can, contribute obviously but uh what else are you working on just briefly what else are you working on over at american commitment well we we uh we supported the house debt ceiling bill which i thought was a really good bill this past week so that was kind of our big push that got through and uh you know we're gonna try to try to buck up republicans to really fight for the things that they put in that bill and uh at some point i think that the president will probably have to negotiate and we're going to try to um try to get some policies that actually change the trajectory of the country in terms of growth and uh, spending restraint. If we're going to have to pile on more debt on the national debt, which looks obviously unavoidable at this point. So that's uh, that was that was kind of the big one this week. But we're trying to stop. We're still trying to stop the student loan bailouts. And uh, we're still trying to you know push some more sensible energy policy and you know, some of these other things. And if, uh, and, and of course, on the covid front, we're still trying to get rid of the ban on uh, unvaccinated foreign travelers we hope in time for the u.s open so that Djokovic can play uh so we'll, we'll, that's that's another one we're like there are like six countries left in the world and we're one of them it's like us pakistan and indonesia and then a handful of island countries so it's even though we have all sorts of data right now that says that the vaccine doesn't actually stop transmission it actually doesn't stop. they don't care it, it, who, yeah we don't yeah it, it's a ridiculous policy. There's no defense for it, but Biden hasn't dropped it. So until he does, we'll keep banging that drum too. It's because power is all that matters. Power is all that matters. Also, there's a, a essay up right now called End Regulatory Tyranny. Don't expand the power of the Federal Trade Commission. Maybe we'll have you back on to talk about that sometime. 
be happy to because Lena Khan, who runs that uh, agency, is one of the craziest leftists who's ever been given power in this country. And uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of bills in Congress to give her more power, including some that Republicans support because they haven't necessarily thought through. You know, they say, I hate this company. I'm going to stick the FTC on them. And it's like, well, it's like this FTC. You know, <laughs> it's like a. Yeah, well, go over to AmericanCommitment.org and check that out. We'll get Phil back on here soon to talk more about that. Phil Kirpen, at Kirpen, K-E-R-P-E-N on Twitter. Still? Still on Twitter? Yep, that's it. Last name. There you go, at Kirpen. So be sure to check that out as well. Thanks, Phil. Great talking with you again. All right, have a good one.